Hello and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2014 Fall Retreat. I'm Chris Dower, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. Our speaker in this podcast is General Jim Mattis, an Annenberg Distinguished Visiting Fellow at the Hoover Institution. The title of his talk is The Worsening Situation in the Middle East and America's Role, and it was recorded on October 20th, 2014. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for having me back here again. Uh, Again, in light of some of my public remarks, I'm seldom requested to return to any nice, polite audience. So it's always good to see the overseers, especially. Uh, I have a special place in my heart for Hoover. Uh, it is the one organization that over my last 10 years on active duty, when I had to testify in front of the House and the Senate, I would cut and paste many of the ideas that came out of Hoover and put them into my, uh, my words, my testimony there because with the multi-syllable words and everything, it made me look very erudite when I got in front of the Senate. So I owe a, a deep debt of gratitude to this organization, but especially for the intellectual rigor with which it addressed many of the issues that I had to deal with. Uh, what I thought I'd do, ladies and gentlemen, is uh, set the stage very quickly in a rather deductive way where we go from uh, basically the world situation, the U.S. situation down to the Middle East, because you have to look at it in a context. You can't look at it in isolation and leave a lot of time here for questions and answers, always the best part with the overseers. I've just testified again last month in front of Congress, and I will tell you I get better questions here in California than I do in Washington, D.C. Uh, matter of fact, the TSA agent, as I got off the airplane coming back to California, was somewhat perplexed when I grabbed him, hugged him, and said, I request political asylum west of the Rocky Mountains. <laughs> but, uh, but ladies and gentlemen, Secretary Schultz, uh, our, our, what we call our senior Marine on campus here, uh, has repeatedly uh, addressed in his words, his speeches, his, his writings about the world being awash and change, and really about the breaking down of those international institutions that were created in order to create peace and prosperity across this globe. And as Secretary Rice noted last evening, in spite of what we set up after World War II, uh, the, world, the, the world order seems to be spinning out of control. Uh, the nation state is losing primacy in many areas, certainly in the area up on the maps you see. Climate change is causing massive population shifts uh, movements, including in this area, and of course there's shifts in the economic center of gravity across the world. At the same time as all this is going on, America is seen as withdrawing, and nowhere in the world is this more pronounced, this impression, this perception, than in the Middle East by our friends and our foes. Now you may have heard that the NATO Secretary General was rather plaintive when he asked, are the Americans still with us in NATO? Uh, there is certainly concern in Japan that they're on their own vis-a-vis -vis China to some degree. Whether that's right or not, I would just tell you, you take all those concerns and look at this region, and from Cairo to Tel Aviv, from Riyadh to Abu Dhabi, you hear the same thing over and over again. I think it's increasingly clear, ladies and gentlemen, what the greatest generation realized as they came home from World War II and what was the bloodiest war in human history. They looked around, they saw a pretty crummy world with tens of millions dead, 
and they saw that the international order is not self-sustaining, something I hope they understand in Washington, D.C. And they carved out a role for America, and that role was to help define America's leadership in the world. And you saw it manifested in things like the United Nations, NATO, the Marshall Plan, certainly Bretton Woods, and Bretton Woods revisited. And with those different roles that the U.S. carved out for itself, it left one role that it would not take part in, and that was that of a passive spectator to what was going on in the world. They'd seen once what that led to, and they weren't up for doing it again. So America, over many, many years, has proven resilient many, many times, but we have to embrace the reality of America right now today. We're not paying one another here in this world to have some fantasy life. And first of all, our model of government is not working well right at this time. Now, it's not to say it can't recover. We've seen it recover before. But in my travels, I have been to Canberra over the last six months, uh, Brussels, Budapest, London, Abu Dhabi, Tel Aviv, Amman, I can go on. There is more governing going on in many of those capitals than in our own capital right now. Uh, at the same time, as there, the, there's a lack of governance, of leadership, of, of creating common cause, the Americans are on an unsustainable fiscal path. We cannot sustain the path we're on. It is arithmetic. It doesn't matter what your political ideology is. You simply can't make it work. And terrorism, which we'll talk about here today, as ugly as it is, and it's about as ugly a thing as you can imagine, it's much worse than what you're seeing on the television screens, because it's so ugly you can't show it. Uh, even as ugly as terrorism is, it is probably less a threat to our republic than our national debt. And no country in history has maintained its military capability that did not keep itself on a fiscally sustainable path and keep its fiscal house in order. And so without a robust American economic recovery, and that will involve taxation, and regulatory reform, our military capability will continue to erode. The, the economy has always been the engine behind which we pulled the military capability to the forefront. And the last point I would make about the current situation, uh, reinforced from my last trip there at Washington, D.C. last month, is that we are working right now in a strategy-free environment. And I'll get into more details on that. Uh, I know that's not, that's, I try to say that with a straight face, but uh, I've never been in any town where on more nameplates in the city, on the office nameplates, the word strategy isn't printed in some form. Strategic analysis, strategic approach, strategy for NATO, and this sort of thing. And I can see no town right now where there's less strategic thinking going on. But in the midst of all this, we look at this region here you see up on the maps, uh, it's a region that's dissolving into crises. And thanks to you all who paid my tuition for the last 40 years, uh, I got to understand the region slightly. And part of understanding the region is understanding what you don't know about it. And so I have a pretty good grasp on that as well about my own uh, deficiencies there. But I would tell you that I do understand more of the complexities after spending decades there and this region will get worse before it gets better, and we are watching Arab civilization disintegrate before our eyes. Those are realities. Now, why is it difficult to understand? As we look at the various things we're doing, 
as we look at the various uh, news coming in, it's sometimes hard just to put it into a mental model that allows you to really comprehend it. And Secretary Rice uh, hit on a couple of these last night, and I'm going to add, basically I'm going to count up to four cross-currents that may help you when you read the paper tomorrow morning to get kind of a sense of how to put in context what you're reading. First of all, there's the Sunni versus Shia. And Secretary Rice talked about that to some degree last night. Uh, it's a 1,300-year-old dispute. It's not going away anytime soon. It's been violent and less violent, violent, less violent. And right now, clearly, it's a very violent period in the Sunni-Shia hatred. Uh, by the way, the first time you read about the Sunni-Shia hatred and the jihadists and that sort of thing in American presidential papers is under Thomas Jefferson. And for those of you who are Marines in the audience, that's where you got for your Marines hymn to the shores of Tripoli. That's how long ago it goes back. So this is not something wholly new. It's just manifesting in a different way. That's the first cross-current constant. The second one is the authoritarians versus the reformers. And you saw that brought forward in very sharp focus with the Arab Spring. As you saw reformers, people, millions of young, many young people uh, wanting democracy uh, but not knowing how to get there in largely leaderless uh, rebellions and then you see it continue to play out now in Syria, although most of the reformers are dead, been radicalized, or uh, made refugees. There are very few left. They've been caught between Iraq, Assad, and a hard place, the jihadists, and it just ground them uh, to nothing. Uh, and so there's not, the, the reformers are definitely on the losing end of the stick, whether it be in Tehran, where the oppressive powers of the mullahs are much stronger than what the reformers can muster in the streets or elsewhere. The third cross-current are the secularists versus the Islamists. And in this case, uh, you can see them again. For example, in Iran, you see them as the elected Rouhani. And remember, the supreme leader has the real authority, the Islamist, and he determines who can run for office. And then when someone's made the president, he determines how much flexibility he has on the, uh, on the, for example, nuclear negotiation. That's one small encapsulation of it, but you also saw it when the Muslim Brotherhood took over after Mubarak fell in the election and then were publicly impeached in the largest demonstrations in the history of the world by the Egyptian populace who said, we want no more of this pious, incompetent Muslim Brother Islamist government and they basically welcomed in, shepherded in, a military uh, government as a better way to go, General al-Sisi uh, resigning to run for office and winning. Then you've got nation-state survival as another cross-current. And in this case, you're watching the Sykes-Pico borders. These were borders drawn by a couple of amateur French and British guys who just drew those straight lines that you see up here that go cutting across, go cutting across places where tribes are on both sides, ethnic groups were thrown together that are historically antagonistic, and we're watching those borders fray today as the cobbled together states are really straining. As a result of those four cross currents, we have non-state actors today who are really uh, setting the Mideast agenda. 
ISIS is not a nation state. Lebanese Hezbollah is not a nation state. Uh, the the Sunni-Shia uh, rivalry cuts across different boundaries here. Some countries are made up of Sunni and Shia, Iraq. Others are principally Shia, Iran, but have significant minority populations. And it's a region that's become increasingly hostile to minorities. Secondly, the major political ideologies that transcend national boundaries are causing the undercurrents now that erode things like the boundaries. And the most dramatic case, of course, is over here where you look at the boundary between Iraq and Afghanistan, excuse me, <laughs> wrong, wrong one, between Iraq and Syria, and that border has literally been bulldozed by ISIS. It no longer exists even geographically on the, on the ground. And so in the midst of these conflicting cross-currents, you've got the Americans who have an absence of policy right now, and that is coupled with a confusing, or some people say, again, absent, integrated regional strategy. And this has the United States, I would, I would characterize it as we're playing checkers on a chessboard. And in that case, uh, the result is an, are often confusing and very contradictory uh, policies, and it leaves both the American people and our friends in the region scratching their heads, very perplexed about just what we're doing. And I think part of the reason is we live at a time when political leadership is unable to articulate the values and the policies that would bring along the Western democracies. Since Tony Blair left office as the United Kingdom Prime Minister, I don't think we've had any Western political leader who could articulate the nobility of what it is we stand for and why it's worth fighting for. And as a result of America's lack of sound policy and strategy, we have very ill-defined political ends. I would defy anyone in here to tell me the political end state why of, of the, for the pilots who are currently dropping the bombs uh, as we sit here today and dropping them in the name of all of us in this room. What's happened is, ladies and gentlemen, we deal with each immediate vexing problem as one-off because we don't have a sound policy framework within which we put together a strategy, which is we take our political ends and we find our economic, our diplomatic, our military, our education, our CIA covert methods, and we match enough of those resources to achieve our ends in consonance with our allies. And yet right now, we are unwilling to even ask the most basic strategic question. For example, is political Islam, as practiced by the mullahs in Tehran, is political Islam as practiced by the Muslim brothers for a year in Cairo in our best interest? We're not even asking the question. And then we, that would lead us to the next question. If not, what is our policy, what is our strategy to support the countervailing forces? And if we don't ask those kinds of questions, our military can be the bravest, most valiant, well-equipped in the world, but their ability to bring us closer to a political end state that's not defined simply doesn't exist. They're, they don't have the ability to take us somewhere where we don't know where we want to go. Now, the duty of a military strategy is to match purposeful military activity in pursuit of those political interests as expressed in our policy and I think so long as the American administrations do not 
have a recognizable policy, recognizable to you and I and our allies, and a viable strategy, then uh, to put it in astronaut terms, Houston, we have a problem. Um, the single biggest problem within the region, ladies and gentlemen, that undercuts America's role is that we're seen as withdrawing, our power is declining, and really we're pretty unreliable as a partner. I, had an air, I was over in the Middle East here in, uh, a few months ago, and there were 15 people in the room. I knew the foreign minister was talking to them. We've known each other for many years. I was wearing this. I was no longer speaking for America. I was retired, part of Hoover. And he rotates halfway around in his chair. I'd purposely slunk off to the side. I just wanted to listen. And he looked me right in the eye and he said, today my country has more in common with Israel's foreign policy than with America's. Now, ladies and gentlemen, that's just about impossible to achieve and we've managed to do it. And I bring this up because the current American actions are pretty much more reassuring to the jihadists than they are to our friends. And this is something we have to look at uh, because in the face of these current challenges of ISIS right now, uh, which by the way was predicted, no matter what anyone of any rank says that the intelligence community did not warn them, I assure you the intelligence committee community warned me and everyone above me in very blunt terms what would happen if we pulled all of our troops out right down to a young lady at the end of a 40-minute brief sitting there waiting for me to say something intelligent it was going to be a long wait she could tell so she added general and this is three years ago by the summer of 2014 all hell will break loose she even had it down to the date so we knew it was going to happen. ISIS has admittedly had a very good year, but I would also suggest to you that ISIS is weaker today than it will be in six months or in a year if we don't take firm action now. So if we were to say, let's go forward a year and look back, what would we wish we'd have done? That's what should guide our actions today. Because while many of us with my color hair can say, well, this won't manifest for a few years, what kind of world are we turning over to our children if we don't live up to our responsibility to address something as hateful and medieval as ISIS and how they are recruiting an awful lot of people? In light of the deteriorating situation in Washington and our reputation, it is going to be harder, not impossible, to put together the coalition. I, I think that as Hoover's Dr. Shockey has critically explained, expecting others to commit fully when we exempt ourselves from doing the same thing, does not build a strong, committed coalition. So we're going to have to step up. We're going to have to lead. That doesn't mean a 100,000-man army going back into the Middle East, but it means, too, we should be very slow to tell our enemies in advance they won't face the most fierce, the most capable, the most ethical ground forces in the world. Even if we're not going to use them, we shouldn't give the enemy a reassurance in advance that they won't face them. So I think too we have to recognize that the danger of ISIS should not be exaggerated. Right now they are not a threat to our homeland. Very quickly they could be. And I've dealt with this enemy since 1979 in various permutations. And I would just caution you not to patronize them just because they can't carry out their grandiose expectations right now. They, they, once they get their feet on the deck, once they have a safe haven, the size of Great Britain here that they're carving out, if they were left to their own devices, 
they will start exporting their problem. And it's very interesting to look at this in terms of how we have to deal decisively with them because if we do it by, with, and through our allies out there, our partners, uh, there can be a sustained effort that does not require the American taxpayer, the American military and their families, and the Americans take on the total burden. For example, we have a couple of allies. I've talked about them before at Hoover. First one, uh, United Arab Emirates. We call them Little Sparta in the U.S. military. These, these folks have been with us in Desert Shield, Desert Storm, in Somalia, in Kosovo, in Bosnia. When our traditional allies had to cut back forces in Afghanistan, they added forces. One phone call when NATO went after Libya, wisely or unwisely, and United Arab Emirates was there with us. They're a wonderful, wonderful partner, and they're unapologetic about their connections to the Americans. Uh, the other one, the King of Jordan, I was with him uh, a little over a year ago, and we were talking uh, out on his back porch. We got all done talking about the Syrian refugee issue and how we would work together on, on helping Jordan take care of over a million refugees in his country. And I, I've known the king a long time. I said, what's it like to be a king? You know, I've never been a king. What's it, what, what's it like doing this thing? And he was talking about things, and he said, by the way, he said, I've heard about the problems you have with keeping troops in Afghanistan. He said, rest assured, the last Jordanian soldier will be standing there with the last American soldier. We're not coming out till you do. Now, ladies and gentlemen, you cannot buy allies like this with money. It is based on reputation, and they have stuck with us even when there were an awful lot of reasons to doubt their loyalty to us. So we do have friends out there. It is hard to fight with allies. They will have their own needs, their own interests. Uh, as Winston Churchill put it so well, the only thing harder than fighting with allies is fighting without allies. But we can rally them around us if we're willing to listen and to be persuaded where we can find common ground. And if you want to see the role of allies, Assad in Syria was on his way out two and a half years ago. No bookie in Las Vegas would have bet that he would be there a year later, even six months later. What Assad had were two very good allies. Russia blocked the UN action, and his diplomatic ally, Assad's diplomatic ally and Putin, made certain that the UN was marginalized on this issue. And then Iran was his operational ally, bringing in troops, advisors, ammunition, weapons, money, whatever he needed, because for Tehran, this would be the biggest strategic setback in 20 years if he fell. So if you ever want to see the role of allies played out, there's a current example that takes a disastrous situation and allows Assad to turn it around, and I would expect that he'll take the rest of Aleppo here probably within the next few weeks. I think the airstrikes that we're conducting now will buy us time. Maliki being forced out had to happen in order to try to bring the Kurds and the Sunnis back in. The new guy who's in there, ladies and gentlemen, is a good guy. I don't know that he has the force of personality in, in Baghdad to bring everyone back together. And I'd written up my notes to talk to you last week. I had to go through and change them this morning because the uh, new Minister of Defense is Sunni in the government, just came up this weekend. That's a good thing to make the Sunnis feel they can rejoin the Shia-dominated government. The new Minister of Finance is Kurd. That's good, so the Kurds and the 
Sunnis can feel maybe we'll get a fair share of the oil revenues instead of all of it going to the, uh, the Shia. But then they put into the Ministry of Interior a Badr guy. Badr group, by the way, is controlled, funded, influenced by Iran. So you have two steps forward, one step back. Uh, I think it's 50-50 whether or not Iraq can hold together and, and make things happen. But without competent ground forces, there is no way they will regain the lost territory. And those competent ground forces could very well require American advisors, somewhere between 10 and 20,000. By the way, our plan, had we left 15,000 advisors there when we were drawing down, was to continue drawing them down as the Iraqi army got better, and we made certain that they could handle this enemy kind of taking the training wheels up higher and higher on a bicycle till we could pull them off. Instead, we pulled them off too early. Here's what Maliki did. He got rid of the good officers very quickly because he replaced them with party hacks who he was sure would not be a threat to him. When the American forces were there, he couldn't get away with it. Uh, we were aware of what was going on. The ambassador had these contacts and the CIA had operatives all over the country. And as a result, our ambassador could go in and say, no, no, no. We're not going to support you if you do that. He also jury-rigged the command system so that the, it would be like uh, if our Pentagon was completely circumvented by our military and reported straight to the White House. It was a disaster when the enemy attacked and they could not coordinate. So these things have got to be undone. General John Allen is there now trying to put this coalition together, but it's going to take time. And that's where the airstrikes come in and we're going to have to do more because the airstrikes in themselves are ineffective. The uh, military effort can support the political effort and buy time, but it cannot do better than that. Uh, we're going to have to choose our own side in this fight and sign on with allies that may not be perfect. And I bring this up because we need those capable ground forces. And we don't want them to be, as a result of a disaster six months from now, to be all American. And there's a way to prevent that from happening. Remember that the terror in the Middle East comes in two forms. The first one you all know about, Al-Qaeda. They, uh, they attacked our embassies in East Africa, declared war on us about 1995. They brought down the trade towers in New York City. Uh, that sort of thing blew up uh, USS Cole in a neutral port while she was refueling. Uh, their leadership has been shredded. But if you look at this map, uh, what you're going to see is down here in the Somalia area, and here in Yemen, you have a franchising Al-Shabaab here, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula in Yemen. And that is the group that's targeted most on us right now, is Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. You also have further over here in uh, Boko Haram out in North Africa, and in that case, the French have led a pretty effective fight against them, but the French cannot politically or fiscally sustain that fight. You've also got, of course, ISIS and al-Nusra up here in Syria, uh, what grew out of the old al-Qaeda in Iraq. And you've got uh, various other groups uh, running around in various places. Of course, still some al-Qaeda up in this area here. It's, it's basically a franchising enemy. And what they've got now is a much more aggressive group that the young, angry young men can join, uh, which is ISIS. And if we simply fly airstrikes, and ISIS is still standing when it's over, as they are right now, in what some people uh, are calling shock and yawn uh, in terms of our, our, our strikes. 
then you see what happened when you use impotent or half measures with, uh, with uh, military efforts instead of going either in or out. Uh, the second group, uh, just remember, uh, is it should not be forgotten. They declared war on us in 1983. They blew up our embassy in Beirut. This is Lebanese Hezbollah and associated elements. It's controlled by Iran. Uh, they've changed nothing. They, they killed the prime minister of Lebanon, Prime Minister Harari, uh, years ago. Uh, they murdered Israeli tourists in Bulgaria a few years ago, earning them the European Union's condemnation. Uh, they actually tried to kill the Saudi ambassador to Washington, D.C., less than two miles from the White House uh, on a crowded uh, Saturday night in Georgetown at a, at a restaurant. And absent one fundamental mistake, this, this conspiracy cooked up at the highest levels in Tehran would have succeeded. They made one fundamental mistake. Remember, don't uh, carry on a uh, conference with uh, narcotics traffickers in Mexico when one of the guys sitting at the table is a drug enforcement agent. It's not real smart. But we caught him in the act, and we did basically nothing. We put one guy in jail, but the government was allowed to walk on this thing. Uh, when you take a look now, take those two brands of terrorism and look at ISIS. ISIS, ladies and gentlemen, is like Al-Qaeda in its military terror activities and Lebanese Hezbollah as well, plus Lebanese Hezbollah in its social activities, trying to set up schools and social services and all on steroids. They're much more effective. They've learned in the, the normal Hegel model of thesis, antithesis, synthesis, thesis, antithesis, synthesis. They keep getting better as they fight us and they see how to fight us. And so they are much more capable right now. And we've got to also look at what makes so many young men susceptible to this message and so many old men in the Middle East willing to put their money up for these young guys to go do this stuff. So it's, it's all part of this effort that the military can certainly support, but we've got to buy time and fight this much more smartly with our allies and the, the like-minded nations, the, ref the most reformist nations out there, the ones that are most responsive to the needs of their people, and they are out there. But we certainly have to avoid any kind of half-hearted measures. And to say we have an airstrike strategy Ladies and gentlemen, that's not even strategy 101. I mean, that's not 201, that's not 301. That is so sophomoric to think that dropping bombs alone is going to do something in this world. It's like someone who's never read a history book. But regardless uh, of ISIS and all the attention we're giving it right now, we cannot allow it to, to blind us to the broader problems of Iran. The nuclear negotiations on the nuclear weapons program not the nuclear program, the nuclear weapons program is not, they, those negotiations are not going well. And I would just say that uh, if they do get a nuke, a country that would try to kill an ambassador on the streets of Washington, D.C., you'd almost have to say everything, all bets are off if they had a nuclear weapon to help guarantee that they wouldn't be uh, held accountable. So we have to construct a good policy, one that persuades you, the American people, this is worth it and then brings our allies together with a sense of purpose. We're gonna to have to build that coalition and we're gonna to have to stand by the responsive governments in the region. And this may mean that we lead more and intervene militarily less in most cases. It does not mean we have to be going around doing all the military stuff all the time 
for a country that has got both the power of inspiration and the power of intimidation, sometimes we forget that we can inspire people to do a lot more if we give them a good sense of confidence that we're with them. Uh, and then we're going to have to act on the broader dangers out in that area because uh, if we don't believe this can happen, then we are going to turn over a worse situation to the next generation. And I was uh, back a few years ago in the last millennium, I was Secretary Perry's executive secretary when he was the Secretary of Defense. Basically, I sat behind him taking notes wherever he went. And I still remember on Capitol Hill when we went into Kosovo and Bosnia, and I, I still remember getting beat up saying, these Christians and Muslims have murdered each other for centuries, you can't stop this. Why are you sending our troops in when the Europeans won't go in? This is happening only 100 kilometers from Rome. Why don't you let them handle it? And President Clinton said, we're going to go in and we're going to take care of this. Secretary Kerry was fighting it. And we put troops in there. Today we've got a couple hundred troops left there. A lot of other nations have troops there too. But how many times in the last five, six, seven, eight years have you heard of anything going wrong in Kosovo or Bosnia? We can stop this sort of thing if we stick together, if we have a good strategy, if we resource it correctly, if we believe in ourselves, we can stop this sort of thing. Europe's safer, Europe's more secure, Europe's stronger, NATO is stronger, and there's an island of stability in Europe that would not be there if it weren't for American bubblegum chewing GIs walking in there and saying this will cease now. There's a time for us to do that sort of thing and it's usually when we're priming the pump to bring a lot of other people with us because we have a very well laid out political end state, a strategy that builds, uh, builds support across the international community. But a clear-sighted and confident America has the power to deal with this. But if there's a failure on our part to act multidimensionally, ladies and gentlemen, I've, uh, again, I've dealt with these folks and, uh, and they mean business. Let me stop there so we've got time for Q&A here. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on either iTunes U or SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.